Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at Disney Plus's new Broadway film, Hamilton. Uh, it's actually a couple years old now, but they're running it new now, so it's like new to the rest of us who can't afford tickets to Hamilton. We're also going to look at Christopher Nolan's 2017 historical drama, uh, Dunkirk. I almost said Tenet, but that's not out yet, and apparently <laughs> won't be out for a while. May uh, never gonna, be. Yeah, I, I may, you know... Eventually it'll be, I guess. Uh, we're going to talk about why a bunch of movie theaters are suing the state of New Jersey. That's kind of an interesting story. And before we get to all that, we need to talk about the news. Of course, our first story this week, Cinemark in a surprise policy change is now requiring all theater guests to wear masks. Uh, this is coming hot on the heels of AMC announcing that they are going to be open and they are going to make people wear masks. Regal theaters are also going to make people wear masks. Now Cinemark is saying, hey, the other two kids are doing it. We got to do it too. Now everybody's got to wear masks when they go to the movie theater. Andy, what do you think about this? Um, it's probably a good thing. Theaters have had a tough time, probably one of the hardest times of deciding what to do as they try to reopen as as we're moving through uh, the pandemic. Um, there had been kind of this flip-flopping going on about masks or, or you know, they weren't going to force people to wear them or they were going to see whatever local ordinances were in place first. And there was, it was really unclear, but now all three of the big chains have decided that they will in fact require masks of all pr- patrons, of course, unless you're eating your popcorn or drinking your drink. Yes, uh, this is following some kind of rescheduling for reopening plans. I think it's weird because we record this show in Dallas for anybody who's not in town listening. And Dallas is like the headquarters of Cinemark. It's actually Plano, which is just directly north of us. So we have some locations here that are open, but I don't think they're open like anywhere else in the, in the state. Do you know anything about that, Andy? Um, it, No, not, not really. I, I, I know that... The, they're they're cho- choosing some in their major markets. There might be some open in Houston, but yes, there it's only a handful of theaters. Yeah, and and this is following AMC's flip flop because when AMC announced they were opening uh, two weeks ago, their CEO said they weren't going to require masks. Uh, in an interview with Variety, he said uh, they didn't want to get political, so they were just going to not. You weren't going to have to do masks, and then they caught so much feedback. They said, okay, now we are going to do masks. <laughs> Uh, which then made Cinemark and Regal shift uh, uh, direction. I think ultimately it's probably a good thing. Um, but like I said a few weeks ago, like nobody wants to go to the movies if they don't feel safe. And masks definitely don't emanate a feeling of like all around safety. I, I don't know. What am I trying to say here? Yeah, safety. And I mean, large gatherings themselves are still not going to be safe for quite some time. And, you know, going to a theater for a couple of hours with a bunch of strangers is still just not going to be a great idea for a long time, you know, because one of, one of the things that's, that's dangerous is, is uh, exposure time. You know, if you're around someone who's potentially sick, but it's only for a few minutes, you're much less likely to get it than if you have to be in a room with that person for several hours. So it's still not going to be, be safe for a long time, I th- I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I think the same thing. That being said, I've been to the theater once uh, since all this started. Andy, how many times have you been? I've only been twice. Okay. I, saw, I, thought, I, saw, I thought I'd been three times, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw Mad Max, and then uh, we, we saw, of course, uh, Indiana Jones uh, together. Um, I'm, I'm definitely becoming less... Uh, you know, they're still doing those $5 films, um, yeah. but... But I'm becoming less and less enamored with it as much as I'd like to go, you know, see some of those classics again. 
Yeah, I was surprised to see Sony uh, took the box office for July 4th uh, just over this weekend, at least in theaters, uh, because of Ghostbusters was rerunning in theaters that were open. And that 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 definitely swept the nation for people who were still going to theaters. So great, man. I love Ghostbusters. That's cool. But keep it here on Offscript for more on whatever theaters are doing, because it doesn't seem like this is going to be over anytime soon. Our next story, a bit of a bummer on this one. Uh, Andy, I don't know how to pronounce this wonderful man's name, but I love his music. You want to take a crack at it? It's uh, Ennio Morricone. Yes. Uh, Ennio Morricone, prolific Italian composer for the movies, dies at 91. If for anybody who doesn't know, Ennio Morricone has mostly worked on westerns. Uh, you would probably know him more recently from his work with Quentin Tarantino. The man is a fantastic composer. And honestly, I'm not the music man here. Andy is. So I'm hoping Andy can shed some some really foundational light on this one. Um, yes, Ennio Morricone is just kind of a household name in composition. He has been composing for films for 60 years. His credits go back to 1960 and as recent as this year. Um, he, he has got to start doing uh, the spaghetti westerns of the 50s and 60s, uh, the Clint Eastwood classics, classics such as um, A Fistful of Dollars, For a Few More Dollars, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. He did a lot of those films, really cut his teeth. He's also done memorable scores for The Untouchables, for The, the Mission, um, which has one of his most memorable themes, uh, Gabriel Zobo. And then more recently, he did The Hateful Eight, which I didn't realize was him, and I remember really enjoying that score. Yeah, I want to say... Yeah, okay, here. I, I was going to say, he also collaborated with John Carpenter's The Thing. I was, I was reading about that, because uh, I remember a while back reading that Hateful Eight supposedly had some tracks from The Thing that weren't used. And I was like, there's no way. But there's obviously some comparisons thematically between those films being trapped in a place alone uh, during winter. But um, yeah, he, he's done a lot of work. He's done a lot of collaborative work, mostly for things like Westerns and Tarantino's stuff. That's what he'd be most well-known for, things like uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Hateful Eight. But a lot of collaborations as well, as we can see here. Things like Exorcist Two, John Carpenter's The Thing, The Untouchables, Hamlet, uh, a lot, a lot of good work. Over 500 films in all, I think, is what he worked on, uh, and and he it really contributed in a big way. In 2007, he was awarded an honorary Oscar for his contributions by Clint Eastwood. How appropriate! Um, it's really a bummer, man. <laughs> he put out a lot yeah. of good work. Yeah, a lo- uh, the loss of an idol for sure, but but so prolific, so many. I can't I mean 500 films is insane. That's several. You know, obviously several films a year and worked everywhere, obviously in in Italy, but as well as many scores here. Uh, His themes are are classic and well-known. And you it's one of those things like you've probably heard his music without realizing you were you were hearing his music. Mm hmm. Yeah, and and um, I'm definitely in that camp as well. I, I've I've heard a lot of his scores that I didn't know were his scores until later when I was looking back at the film on IMDb or something and going, oh wow, like that's actually that guy from that other movie. It's 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 one of those funny things about film that I think most people miss, right? How the same creative hands will pass over different projects and and you'll find little strands of dna across multiple pieces of work that make these things so great. And he's one of the great ones. He worked on a lot of really cool projects um, that. It's a bummer he's not around anymore. So yeah, that that's just one of the ones we wanted to cover here. Not something we normally cover on off script, but I appreciate that we did it. Uh, our last story before we dive into Hamilton, also related to the film, Hamilton drives up Disney Plus app downloads seventy four percent over the weekend in the United States. Andy, is this any surprise? 
No, not at all. I mean, Hamilton's a huge property. It's incredibly popular. It's very hard to see. Everyone wants to try to get in on the show, and it coming to Disney Plus is a hugely smart thing for Disney to have done, and it's no surprise that it was a huge hit over the weekend and that lots of people downloaded the app in order to watch it. For anybody who hasn't been keeping up with Hamilton uh, in its more recent film-related endeavors, because I'd imagine you've probably heard about it by now. It's like the biggest Broadway play since Rent or something, uh, and it's been out for five years. I think it started in 2015. Uh, Hamilton was originally scheduled to come to Disney Plus in 2021, like October 2021, way down the line. And maybe it's because they're not making any money from the theme parks right now. Maybe it's because... They're losing profits because nothing's really happening on ESPN, but Disney has got to make things happen. So they decided a couple months ago to bump it way up to July 3rd, which was last Friday from when we were recording the podcast, and just put Hamilton on the internet. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the the original writer, director, and creator, uh, was very excited about it and vocal on Twitter. A lot of the artists and the people who were in it have come together and done some collaborative work since to promote it. So this has been a big deal. This has been a bit of a, a bit of a rushed release because it was really supposed to come out in October. But a lot of people were excited about this thing, and it shows. Uh, uh, looking at the numbers, they 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 what got seventy five seven hundred fifty thousand downloads of the Disney Plus app since Friday. Yeah. That's insane. It's almost a million <laughs> downloads. It's wild. Yeah, and so so people have signed up because you can't just. You know, they're not doing any free trial. I think most of their free trials are actually over now. Um, so you you would have had to actually sign up for for the app um, uh, to be able to see it. And a lot of people were thinking, you know, six, seven bucks, great. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I think it seems like a deal, especially because you're getting not just Hamilton, but a lot of the, you know, larger Disney stuff. So for Disney, this is a win-win. It's like a win-win-win, right? It's huge. It's 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 all about American independence right next to the American holiday. It's something a lot of people want to see and you're going to make some bucks off it. Like it, it, it seems like a brilliant move. I, I wonder why they didn't do this in the first place. Well, I, I mean, they, they had a slate of films allegedly supposed to be coming out. That's why they did. They you know, they weren't doing this before. Um, I what I am looking forward to is when this is uh, turned into a, a film, a film musical as well. Yes, and we should probably talk about that. So let's jump right into the review. Uh, I'm going to be taking the summary on this one, so excuse me if it's a little clumsy, uh, but we need to talk about Disney Plus's Hamilton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Yes, Hamilton is the story of one of our often forgotten founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, because he's not just the man on the $10 bill. Hamilton was the secretary of the first United States Treasury. Before that, he was so much more. He was an immigrant uh, who came over into America after the death of his father and cousin and almost everybody he knows and wanted to make something for himself. He didn't want to... uh, didn't want to throw away a shot as experienced in, in, in the play. And uh, this is the story of him meeting the founding fathers, uh, fighting in the Revolutionary War, establishing uh, the, the first, I don't, I don't know, government of the United States, really, and, and building a treasury that ultimately has stood the test of time. Uh, it's a story about the man, but not exactly told from his perspective, really the people around him, his wife, uh, his, his, his cohorts in the revolution, and even Aaron Burr, the man who shot him. Uh, so it's a very exciting tale. It's very riveting. It is 
almost entirely musical. And before we jump too far in, this performance is of the original cast. Uh, it was filmed in 2016. Over three or two evening performances and one rehearsal with six cameras that bounce around the stage and it all looks seamless. It is quite the production. Andy, what do you think of Hamilton? <laughs> Um, so this is going to be a complicated answer. I think Hamilton is an incredible stage musical. Um, it's really incredible to see this kind of representation on stage. The cast is largely uh, black. The It uses lots of elements of hip-hop and rap and uh, hip-hop dance also as well. So I think it's an incredible piece of art. I don't think it particularly translates well. Um, not necessarily that it doesn't translate well. It's well-made. It's just difficult. It, it was difficult for me to watch a stage musical at home. I th I had a really hard time getting getting into it, and I and it's not because I don't think it, Hamilton is an incredible piece of work. I think it was hard for me to enjoy it in my home. I think if I if if I'd gotten to see it in a big theater, um, like you know at a Cinemark as well as the live performance, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. But um, yeah, it was it was weirdly kind of mixed. I also think the hype kind of ruined it a little bit more. I think I w I'll I would enjoy it up more now, but the the hype definitely ruined it some as well. Yeah, so I feel similarly. I think this is a really incredible body of work. Um, I think there's some really cool stuff happening in it. I think I suffered my experience through, A, hearing for five years that it was the greatest musical of all time and that nobody can get tickets because they're a billion dollars and like it is impossible. Like it became a meme at some point, Hamilton, right? It was like It was like a passing joke that nobody could get tickets to Hamilton. Um, combine that with the fact that I think any filmed performance of a theatrical performance is gonna be frankly a shadow of itself right like it's not quite the same you're not there you're not experiencing like the live theater for what it is I think combining that with how overexcited I was for the movie set me up for some really false expectations. That being said, it is still a fantastic performance, and we've never done something like this on Offscript, so I'm excited to get into <laughs> the larger conversation. The first sure. place I want to start with is the format. I did not know this is almost entirely sung. There is very few spoken words, if ever and it is almost always set to music except for a couple of brief occasions i don't like musicals like that <laughs> <laughs> and i do i do I'm right the so this will this will be good so what did you think of that i guess as as a structure because it, it is a long play it is just shy of three hours it's two hours and 39 minutes and a one minute intermission makes for a two hour and 40 minute film it, it all depends you know there, when i'm there's different kinds of musicals like yeah something like Les Mis is similar to to this where every single there is no dialogue everything is sung there's every single sentence has music to it um and then there's other things something maybe like Chicago or Sweeney Todd where where you have you know bits of acting with with no music uh for me it, it worked and it it was cool to, to see it in action particularly a lot of the um a lot of the hip-hop stuff which i have i have kind of a, a weird or complicated relationship with this because a lot of people that i know they who don't listen to hip-hop and rap and aren't han fans of that genre were coming to me saying oh this is really great and i was like well how would you know <laughs> like uh, but but it is but it helps to see it in person it helps to see these people a acting out and to see them like really i mean because it's like the the rap stuff is legitimately hard and it, and it's like and 
I didn't realize this. There's a Hamilton mixtape where they took like uh, famous rappers and had them actually uh, rap, uh, do the the rap stuff for, or perform it for um, you know for the record. When when you hear some of that uh, in the credits as well. Wow. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, there's a lot I don't know about this, right? I've just always heard about the fervor around it. So it's a strange thing to kind of approach. But I think you're right. Like the music ultimately is very good. There's there's some tracks in here that are straight bangers, like On God. Uh, but there's others <laughs> yeah. that are like just a little, I mean, and that's every musical ever. That is not a slide against Hamilton. They're, they're not all going to be winners, right? And some of them are like super good and catchy. And there were a couple that I was like humming the next day. And there's others that totally fall off by the wayside. And that's completely fine. I think what's interesting is the diverse presentation of musical styles here, right? It's not just rap, it's hip hop, it's R&B. There's a little bit of jazz influence in here. Um, there's a couple of spots that feel a little bit like rock and roll. Um all of that really creates this like dynamic influence of art and culture that's dropped into the setting of the Revolutionary War and the Founding Fathers, which is particularly interesting with an ensemble cast like we have. Uh, I, I think it feels a little... I, it feels genuine, but in a, in a fake way. And I know that sounds... <laughs> sounds weird but like i i don't know it's it's a performance right it's a play it's not going to be like a look through time or anything it's not going to be like a black and white film and i totally get that but like what what comes through is the passion and the heart that all of these all of these actors and actresses genuinely have even like the stage hands the choreography and stuff just just clicks so good we should talk a little bit more about that uh as far as our actual moving around the stage goes and our set it's pretty simple I think I might have kind of expected something like freaking Gone with the Wind or I don't know. And like it's the really, Lion King. Or it's something. a yes. And it's a really simple set and they really get a lot of use out of it. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, just the, that the, uh, you know, I, I think the like the costuming works r- really well and they, you know, it, it's a one basically one stage and then you have like the floor rotates a lot which is you know pretty common in in musicals but yeah there's not a ton of elaborate stage uh props uh kind of the background looks really good but there's not like a ton of you know things on the stage stage itself um i don't i don't know enough about to comment on it but uh, but i but i did think it, it was yeah it's really great and it's very minimal yeah, I, I appreciated the theatrical production. Uh, a lot of the stagehands are wearing clothing that looks similar to the time, but is all just white. So they just kind of disappear into the background a little bit. You don't pay attention, but anybody who's relevant, any main characters will wear color, right? They'll wear pops. And they'll have individual colors to match them, except of, uh, when we're fighting the Revolutionary War and they were wearing a whole lot of blue and white because those were the colors of America and what they were wearing at the time. And I thought that was neat. That ties in the costume design and kind of the larger production. Uh, ultimately, it is a very simple stage and very simple set. Like you said, it's a floor. Uh, with some rotating rings that they use um, to really effective stylistic effect and also some kind of scaffolding around uh, the sides and back of it. Uh, and, and a whole lot of lighting is ultimately what makes the show so dynamic. Very dynamic lighting, very interesting colors, uh, and, and, and a very, very, very uh, tuned-in orchestra, I should say, uh, that, that's just, man, they hit all those notes perfect. And every time somebody is rapping, everything is going correctly to the beat. And like the... The choreography and and the collaboration necessary to pull off something like this, I think really does shine through in the film version of it. It would be a lot more exciting if you were sitting there, of course, but that's every theatrical play. Um, so that stuff I thought was really, 
really effective. Now let's talk about the performances. Uh, we have our main character, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who plays Alexander Hamilton, who's also the writer of the show. Uh, we have his wife, uh, Eliza Schuyler, I think is her name. And then everybody else plays two characters. Almost everybody else in the main yeah, cast. They got, they got a double. Yeah, <laughs> except for uh, except for George Washington and King George. How appropriate. Uh, otherwise, they are all uh, dualities. Uh, any any thoughts on that and their performances as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. So so obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda takes, he kind of takes a spotlight and he's like the name and the face of, of Hamilton, but there's some also really big roles. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. plays Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr probably has the second most important role uh, in this um, as both friend and rival of, of Hamilton. Uh, he does an incredible job and I had no idea because I haven't seen this before of how how complicated that role is um as well as uh, a couple of the other ones that you mentioned have to double uh david or david 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 diggs, david diggs thank Got you it. who who doubles as marquise de lafayette and thomas jefferson uh as well as uh who's the other one uh, uh anthony ramos who is plays john lawrence and philip hamilton basically the, there's like four or five main people um and and it's it's pretty it's really impressive. And a, a person named Chris Jackson plays uh, General George Washington. Obviously a very important role in this. And, and that's the other thing I didn't know. Obviously Hamilton was all I knew about this, but also seeing that George Washington is, is a really big role in the play as well. Yeah. And, and also um, King George, who's not directly any kind of big influence, uh, but he does pop up from time to time with some kind of goofy musical numbers played by Jonathan Groff, who might... Definitely has my favorite musical numbers out of the show, which I know is saying a lot because so many of them are diverse and his are just like King George standing still in the middle of the stage singing this goofy song. But like, dude, he plays it so straight. The guy doesn't blink ever. Like he just, he's just, he's so psycho for King George. And like, it's, it's so subtle in what he's doing. Uh, And it's also a good song. It's not easy to stand still in the middle of a Broadway stage and sing uh, a solo. You know, um, with nothing else going on around you, that's just that's hard. Uh, as are all the other all the performances. All of them were great. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm excited to see actually more so than I was Anthony Ramos in uh, in the Heights, the new Lin Manuel Miranda film is coming out. There's also an adaptation of a play, uh, his other play in the Heights, which is on Broadway. What's interesting about that one though is that's actually a fully fledged film. That's an adaptation, whereas this is just a filmed version of the play and we should probably talk a little bit more about that. Right. Um, right. Andy, so, that, yeah. Tell, tell me about that. So that's where I, I did struggle with this. I had a hard time kind of just paying attention because you're watching a stage performance. You're not watching a film. Uh, ultimately this is not a film yet. And what I would, what I would really want to see, and I knew that going in, but it, it did make it hard to get into. And like I said, if I'd seen it in an actual movie theater, I probably would have been way more into it. Big, with the you know big screen, big yeah. sound, um, so I think that that really hurts it. And I look forward to the day whenever they finally make this into a film musical. I think that that'll be it'd be incredible. But I think I'll enjoy it a lot more, kind of in the comfort in my own home, than just watching kind of a stage performance. Yeah, I think that's probably understandable. Something that takes you on a bit more of a ride, right, and, and less that makes you feel like you should have been there, which is a little bit what this is. It feels a little like, man, it would have been cool if you had seen this live, but. I am glad we have it. Uh, I agree. Um, Like I said, this was filmed over three nights. Uh, The two nights where there is an audience sitting there, it's the stuff that's wide. It's from from the back of the room and they're filming the stage. 
My favorite stuff in this movie were the hard close-ups, which they shot on a rehearsal night, which is when they actually had a cameraman on stage. Uh, if you're watching this on Facebook, you can see the trailer and you can see a couple of those cut-ins in the play. That's the stuff that's the most cinematic because it's like I've, I've transcended past the stage and I'm there with them. And like, that's the stuff that works the best. Any of those cut-in shot I felt like had the most emotional context. It had the most weight to like, and it was used very effectively. Um, and not having that definitely makes you feel like, oh, hey, I'm just kind of watching a recording of the thing that happened. It's still edited together seamlessly and it looks great. And you would never know if you didn't know any better, this was done on multiple evenings and multiple performances. Uh, it's crazy. I think there are days, hours of time between one cut and another, but that's just like a real film, I guess. Ultimately, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, what I was going to say is my comparison is uh, Sweeney Todd. Now, I've seen both, the, or I'm a fan of both the, the Sweeney Todd uh, stage musical as well as the film adaptation with Johnny Depp. Uh, I, but I would much rather watch the film version at home, and I would never want to watch the stage musical at, at home. I would rather just see that in, in person. And so that's kind of um, my comparison. Yeah, and 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 I can understand that. I think I feel the same way, but I guess I, I'd have I'd also have similarly high hopes for the film version, and inevitably there will be one, right? Like this is too big of a property to not. They adapt every musical into a movie at some point. Rent got a freaking movie, like that's what they, they, it happens. So I'm sure that will come along at some point, and when it does, I'll be excited to revisit it. But for what it's worth, there's a lot going on in here. And lastly, something we should probably talk about is the subject matter a little bit, right? Uh, the way in two hours and 40 minutes we accelerate through Hamilton's life, uh, but never really from his point of view. It's always the outside looking in. We're always the audience looking at the stage. And I think something like a film would give you more of that intimacy. Um, any thoughts on that, on, on the pacing, on the structure? I know personally the first half felt a little long for me. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, same. I, I definitely enjoyed the second half. Um, I I like that it it seemed to kind of be a warts in our all story. Like like we got to know these characters and a lot of their kind of. I mean, a lot of them had you know affairs and infidelity in, in their marriage. That 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 is front and center. It's well known. It's part of what's kind of it le leads to his his demise in in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's some double crossing. There there's just you know some scheming. So you get the history the kind of what like i said uh, an accurate history lesson which, which i think is interesting because I, I learned things that i that i didn't know um so i i think i think it's a really interesting approach and, and it's nice to you know that you, that it's not just like it's not just a propaganda film it's proper history yeah i feel the same way uh the first half Feels a little long. Uh, second half is much tighter, and I think it's because the first half is a whole lot of conjecture, right? I'm going to be something. I'm going to be something someday. I'm not throwing away my shot. And then by the second half, all right, we're in the goods. Uh, we have a president. We're we're having a Continental Congress who is meeting and, and debating things, and we're having rap battles now. Like That stuff I felt like worked really well, but getting there is tough. Uh, I remember we watched it July 4th. Uh, Christine and I sat down and watched it. We got the first half, and I was like, oof. You gotta take a break, and she was like, "No, yeah. I'm gonna watch the rest of it." And I was like, <laughs> "Sure," like just because I, it's a lot, um, but it is it is really good. I do wonder when I'm gonna watch it again. I don't know if this is. I mean, maybe this will be a July Fourth thing for me. I, I think a lot of people might have that tradition, but that wouldn't actually that wouldn't be bad actually. Um, yeah, I, I think I will. Having seen it all the way through now, um, I think I'll probably just listen to the soundtrack a lot more. I mean, I, I hadn't ever really listened to the soundtrack, but that's that's where I will enjoy this most. I think. 
Yeah, well, man, having seen it, that totally makes sense. I know people that bought the soundtrack before they saw it, and I was like, how? You talk about the movie version of the play being a shadow of its former self. Like, if you're just listening to the songs, you're really losing a lot. You're missing visual context for everything. Yeah, I, I think that that really, because people have tried to, to push the <laughs> the soundtrack on me, and I've listened to it, and I just couldn't really get into it because there's no context. Um, whereas I've never done that with any other musical. Any other musical soundtrack that I listen to, I've already seen the production or the right. film. Yeah, musical is a whole lot of show and tell. Like, I, I can't just do the tell, uh, and that's that's a problem for me. Ultimately, I, I think I think Hamilton's pretty good, man. You ready for recommendations? Yeah, I am. Andy, would you recommend Disney Plus's Hamilton? Yeah, yes, overall. If you're a fan of, of musicals, if you're a fan of all the hype um uh definitely it's family friendly they bleep out some of the some of the cursing that that's in the in the play to make it uh you know suitable for all all audiences um but you do have to remember it is really long it's two hours 40 minutes it is uh, there is an intermission in uh, after about an hour and 20 um it just it is not a film it is a stage it is a video of a stage musical and just be prepared for that because i i've talked with some other people on the internet who felt the same way they got 30 40 minutes in and were bored out of their minds and it's because you know it's it's maybe it's not a film and you just have to remember that going in yeah um we sound like God, we sound like the old directors now who are like that's not a film film is art or whatever but it's it it in a way, I totally get where you're coming from. Of course, I'd recommend this, right? Like, what am I going to do? Get on here and be like, <laughs> Hamilton's trash. It's it's always yeah. been bad. Like, of, co- of course it's good, right? It's Hamilton. So, yes, I would absolutely recommend it. But, yeah, I, I, with, with the understanding that, one, it is a long picture. You are in for a ride. Two, the set does not change a whole lot. They do, they do some creative stuff with what they've got and, like, the hidden... The moving floor and stuff I think is really neat and and they get really creative with the production design around that but like it's a static set and a static thing for two hours and 40 minutes so you better be into the music because if you're not you're going to be bored maybe watch with subtitles uh, if you can't keep up but ultimately yes it is totally worth the price of admission um, two thumbs up for Disney Plus it's a I, solid score for them I think it's the kind of thing that if you you would need like a Hamilton expert to tell you like if you did it in chunks like if you did it in divided the movie up into three parts or four parts something like that and kind of consumed each, each one like almost like a series that, that might be a, a, a better approach as well yeah that might be the better way to go yeah like do it do like a three night event or something and like split it up or maybe just one and one but but even then I mean like I said, the, the first half was not that strong going in because I had very high expectations. So I worry if I had watched one half and then not come back after a couple nights, I'd be like, do I really need to watch the other half? You know what I mean? Like, so maybe it is worth going in all at once. Um, but I think you're right. Like maybe, maybe split it up is a better way to go because the second half just feels so much stronger than the first. I don't yeah, know. Maybe I, I'll rewatch and feel differently. Like maybe, <laughs> but it, I, I think it's worth figuring out a way to, to see it. Cause I think it is really good. And I think it is a really important cultural thing that's been created. Um, and that people should see it. You just got to find the way that you can digest it the best. I agree. Um, big tip of the hat to Lin-Manuel Miranda and the entire original cast. They are really good in this. And also Disney plus, because somehow I man, their servers held up on july 4th i figured for <laughs> sure they were going to be it was going to be skippy or, or jumpy or laggy and like nope everything worked great so well done guys a killer production for the fourth of july that being said we should move on to our next story andy i'm going to be honest i don't know a whole lot about this one so i'm hoping you can get us into it uh, do you mind handling the segue please sir 
Absolutely. It's time for the death of cinema. So, uh, today we're going to be discussing a news story. This just came out today. Uh, movie theater giants sued New Jersey over unconstitutional COVID-19 closures. Um, so, what this is, is, is a lawsuit between the three big theater chains, AMC, Regal, Cinemark, against the state of New Jersey, because they have been not been allowed to open. They remain closed while the state is slowly, yeah, I think they're entering phase two or three. Um, and churches have been allowed to open. And so they're saying that's unfair. They're saying if a church can be open, a movie theater should also be able to be open in some capacity. So that's the root of this conflict. So I think we need to tread carefully here uh, a little. We are not traditionally a political show, so that's not exactly what we're here to talk about, but we are a movie show, and we do like talking about big movie theaters, especially when they're panicking in the wake of an economic crisis for them. Uh, is there... Uh, where, where are we at on this, Andy? Because on the one hand, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're right. If you can have a gathering of 100 people in a room down the street looking at a stage, why can't you have a gathering of a hundred people in a room up the street looking at a screen, right? Like fundamentally, you're probably not that wrong, I think. Yeah, yeah yes, I, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, New Jersey is, is kind of coming out of their their pandemic and they are or their quarantine. And so they're starting to reopen the state and uh, movie theaters just kind of been left in the in the dust with that. And so, you know, even if you have to open up 50%, 25%, something, um, de- theaters, I think, should definitely be included on that list. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. Do, do I think people should be getting together in rooms with other people? No. Um, <laughs> and I did go see Raiders of the Lost Ark, so I realize how contradictory that sounds. But I, I still probably think it's a bad I Like... It's probably just a bad idea, right, all around. But if, if your state is doing well, which apparently New Jersey is, as far as most states are concerned, and they're starting to open things back up and they feel like it's a good move, I I'm, 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 I'm might be a little on the side of the movie theaters on this one. Just just a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a complex time. As we know, the, the Cinemark is open in Texas, at least some theaters. Um and they're trying their best. They, they're trying to get people in, make them feel comfortable. Uh, but every location is different. Every state is handling uh, the epidemic and quarantine differently. And so, yeah, it, it just kind of, it's different everywhere you're at. And I think they're a little bit, they're doing a little bit better than us, uh, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I think ultimately movie theaters might be pushing for the right thing here, right? The big, the big ones really are AMC, Cinemark, and Regal. Three big movie theater chains in America, so no surprise there. But what it seems like they're trying to do in New Jersey is get themselves classified as small businesses, mm-hmm. which, like, based on their bylines, they're not. But I get independently, one theater by itself can be seen as kind of a small business. That makes sense to me. Um, and they're trying to get themselves relegated to stage two of their three-stage reopening plan, right? Like, small businesses can open, indoor shopping malls can open, mo- churches can open, but movie theaters just kind of up in the air. I guess I guess they're considered stage three, whatever that is, uh, in New Jersey, and they're trying to eke their way into spot number two. Um, I, I think I think that's not the craziest thing ever, and I know that sounds nuts because I love to rag on movie theaters, but like... <laughs> I don't know, Andy. They're kind of right, right? Yeah. In, in this situation, I, I mean, I think they definitely have have a good argument. Um, again, uh, the safety of people and 
theater goers are, are definitely paramount. Uh, but if, if things are going well in New Jersey and their cases are down, they should definitely be on on the list of things that are getting reopened. Yeah, um, I'm frustrated by the the legal action and the litigation, right? I think the, the, the state of New Jersey probably has bigger fish to fry than like giant multi-million dollar movie theater chains being upset that they can't open a couple shops around town as soon as everybody else can. Um, there probably are actually small businesses that really need to thrive. And in that way, it's not really New Jersey's problem if AMC is hurting, right? Like... I get it. Um, they're technically not a small business in any capacity. Um, but <laughs> if you're going to open, you should, you should probably you should probably just open, right? Are we talking in circles? Are we, are we kind of? We, we don't have a ton, of, yeah. ton. We don't have a ton to say on this, other than uh, theaters are still kind of up in the air. Uh, releases have been pushed back. Originally, Tenant was supposed to come out July seventeenth, which is. Yeah, 10 days from now can you believe it um and then it got pushed to the end of july and now it's on august 12th so we'll see if we hit that date yeah well we'll, we'll see and ultimately uh, this is the depth of cinema segment is this killing cinema i mean the, coron- might be killing, the coronavirus might be but it might be Jersey. it might kill theaters yeah if anything jeez yeah so i i i, I think we're all right i think new, i think new jersey would be okay I hope AMC will be okay if those rumors a couple of weeks ago about them having like less than a million dollars to make it through the end of July is any tr- is any kind of truth, then they might not be okay, but I'm sure it's fine, right? I have a hard time believing any big theater chain is going to be closing its doors for good in the next month. Mm-hmm. And and let me timestamp that in case I'm completely wrong. And within a month, theater chains are closing their doors. Other, anyway, we should move on to our last review, uh, a movie... I had not seen a bit of a white whale for me, but Andy, of course, had. Uh, Andy, you want to fill people in a little bit? Tell them what we're watching. Dunkirk. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? So this is the 2017 Christopher Nolan film about Dunkirk, uh, which, if you don't know, was a military situation in where in World War II, the British and French, uh, their entire armies were kind of cornered on this beach in France, Dunkirk Beach. Um, and they were going to be captured. And had they been captured, they would have essentially been the end of of the war the the germans may have actually won world war ii um they managed to survive long enough to get rescued by both military vessels as well well as civilian ships that came and got them from uh, got them from england to come back across the english channel um so it's a story of survivor it, it's kind of it's anti-war in a little bit like there's not tons of like battle it's not a battle or anything it's about surviving and just trying to get off uh, this godforsaken beach um, so this story told by Christopher Nolan, uh, he tells it in three kind of different ways, land, air, sea. We have men on the beach, um, kind of played by nameless soldiers that we don't really get to know. We have Mark Rylance, uh, who's, a, who takes a boat from England across the channel to rescue soldiers. And then we have Tom Hardy in the sky flying a Spitfire plane. We have, uh, so like I said, land, air, sea, three perspectives and also three timelines that interweave uh, within each other. And they eventually meet at our, our climax. Um, that is the film. I, I, I'm a big fan of it. I think it's really incredible. 
Zach, what'd you think? So for a little context, uh, I had never seen this film. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before. If you've been listening for a little while, I'm sure you know. Uh, I got the Blu-ray for this movie in like probably 2018. I bet I've had it for a couple years now and like still in the plastic as of last week. Had not ever opened it. It just sat on my shelf. And I wanted to watch it. I did because I love Christopher Nolan and I love everything he's done outside of Insomnia, which I haven't seen. Um, and this movie. So I was excited to watch it, but I knew it was different. Uh, I, I, I remember hearing it is not like traditional Nolan. It is it is a passion project of his. It does not necessarily have the mind-bending, time-warping, alternate reality elements of a lot of his other more science fiction-y work. Um this is a passion project of his because he is a he is a big believer in what happened at Dunkirk and 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 all about it because it's a big story over over in England. This is a big thing for them. It's very patriotic. Here in America, in Texas, <laughs> never have I heard the word Dunkirk before in my life before like 2016 when I started seeing articles about this movie he was working on. No idea. No context going in. I knew it had something to do with soldiers who were stranded and needed to get out of there. That's about it. And this movie pretty much holds up to those expectations. It is not like a big... What am I trying to say here? It, it is not an original Christopher Nolan writing. It's based on a true thing, which a lot of his stuff is like his original ideas. Uh, uh, it's it's different. And I want to talk about that and what <laughs> yeah, that means. Yeah, for sure. I think it needs a second watch because I was not as pleased with it the first time around uh, as I kind of have been with every other Nolan picture I've seen. I went to Inception and like, that was one of the first times in my life I walked out of a theater and was like, I need to just walk back in and watch it. I think, I think like the next day I bought another ticket to go see Inception again. Um, that's how I've always been with Nolan's films. And and this one, I didn't get that. I don't, I don't feel obligated to watch that again, but I know from everybody I talked to that's seen it and loved it. They said probably worth the second watch. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to be honest, yeah. I, I had the same reaction where I think a hype definitely killed it because I had to wait a few days to see it and everyone sure. on the internet was raving about it. And also it, it is a very different film. It, it's not a character driven, um, drama, uh, like the, the characters we, we only, he basically drops us in this situation of people trying to survive. And that's all it is. It's about the survival instinct. You don't, you don't learn anyone's names. You don't learn like, you know, they got a girlfriend back home waiting for it. No, it's, it's none of that like usual kind of cliche, uh, military stuff. You meet these people and you experience what they're experiencing in the moment. So it's, it's very different that way. And it's really effective because he, I think he's making a lot of commentary about the nature of, of war and conflict. But like I said, without getting into like, oh, so-and-so from this farm in Kansas whose wife is at home with two, like he's got to get back. Like it, yeah. it skips all that, just drops you in it. Um, and and it, I've seen it a few times now and it is really brilliant because it, it's told in a asynchronous matter, meaning everything is kind of out of order um, and it's a little hard to keep up with and you miss a lot. It requires multiple viewings for you to really piece together uh, the story, but it's really, really brilliant um, visual storytelling. Yeah. I think Nolan's reputation precedes him here and maybe in a bad way. Um, I think when I found out this movie, you know, we'll talk about plot and continuity and we should get into that and I'll talk about that in, in a minute. But first off, let's talk about, I guess we can talk about plot and continuity. That's the best place to start talking about this movie, right? Because you're right. <laughs> yes. There's not a whole lot of character. There's characters in this movie who just straight up are not named. Like they're in the credits with like single names. 
Like they're not, uh, we, we watch this with subtitles on because I'm a little hard of hearing if you didn't know. And, and uh, I, I, there's a couple of characters who are named in the subtitles who are not named in the film at all in context ever. Um, just totally skips that. And you're right. Nolan typically is very character driven. Like we have a set of characters. This is what we're doing. This is what this is about. This does not do that. It's about a setting and a time um, and about kind of the human spirit um, getting through that tough time and not so much about one singular person. We do have a couple characters that we follow, right? Uh, mm-hmm. um, we have a young uh, corporal, I think, or sergeant played by Fionn Whitehead, who I've never seen in a film since. So I don't know what that means. Uh, he's accompanied by another man who i don't know i need to look these up on imdb that's probably a smart way to go yeah the, uh, the, yeah, yeah. The, he he plays kind of the a, a soldier trying to get off of dunkirk beach and he he runs into a couple of other people and they kind of are working their way off of the beach and they're kind of there's this hugely long line and they're doing whatever they can to get to the front of it and so that's another thing you have to really pay attention because it's easy to miss um a lot of it but that's they kind of represent the the soldiers and the the film's divided up, not necessarily into chapters, but areas. And like part one is the mole, which otherwise it's this giant pier um, where the destroyers will dock to pick up soldiers. Um, and it says a week, meaning it takes a week to get from Dunkirk to England if you buy via the mole, via the destroyer. And then we also have Mark Rylance's character, you know, uh, what is it? C? Yeah, it takes a day to do that journey. And then of course, Tom Hardy air, it takes an hour. Yeah. And, and the movie does not give you a lot of context about that. In fact, uh, it does not ever explain why soldiers are lined up on the beach. Nobody ever says, uh, it's visual. You have to just kind of look at it and figure it out. Uh, and I figured it out pretty much after Andy told me at one point when I just flat out asked, I was like, what, why are they all standing on the beach? He was like, they're lining up to leave. And I was like, Oh Jesus. Okay. Got it. Um, because originally I was just like, what are they, what are they doing? And, and I, I think, that requires a couple things. One, probably some visual intelligence. I probably could just watch the movie and figure it out. And two, probably understanding of the story. I mean, this is a passionate story that's very like England based. I'm sure anybody over there would watch this and immediately understand what's happening. People from other countries may not. And Nolan does not do a lot of work to give you that backstory. You just kind of have to figure it out as you go. And that's okay. That doesn't mean it's any less visual because the, the effects are outstanding here. But you're right. We have. Our, our lead, uh, Fionn Whitehead, uh, uh, plays a boy named Tommy who is trying to get off the beach and is basically collaborating with a couple other soldiers to be like, hey, this line sucks. We got to go. Like, we need to figure out. So they're like crawling their way around the dock, trying to get sneak onto a boat or finding a boat that's washed up on the beach and trying to hold, hold up in that until the tide comes in. Like pretty much any way they can to get out of there, um, which I think is is definitely something. We have, go, go ahead. Yeah, and it's, it's also they're stranded on this beach and there's incoming gunfire like the the enemy is coming ever closer and there's planes flying overhead shooting machine guns dropping bombs on the piers on the boats as they're attempting to leave like that's the thing there's so much anxiety and so much tension in this film which is uh, really brilliant they they're just trying to get off this stupid beach and everything they do seems to kind of get get ruined and and again they're also having to worry about uh, torpedoed u-boats like i said the uh, the spitfires no the spitfires are the english planes whatever the german equivalent are um as well yeah, there's a great there's a great opening scene when when our main character and a couple others are wandering through kind of the inner inner town of of Dunkirk and there's all these pamphlets, these flyers falling down from the sky that are being airdropped by enemy forces and then just this big 
It's this little map of the area with a dot in the middle that says you are here and then a ton of like arrows around it says this is all us. If you're watching the trailer on Facebook, you can see it. It says we surround you. Um, very obvious. Like, hey, nothing good is going to happen to you here. Like you're, you're all it's not going to be good. So they're all trying to figure out how to get off the beach. In the meantime, we have Mark Rylance and friends who are a, uh, a civilian ship that's been what requisitioned yeah. by the Navy uh, to go across the channel to Dunkirk to try to rescue people on the shore because they don't need a dock to pull up. So him and a bunch of other ships are working the way in the course of a day across the sea to try to go save a bunch of guys. And there we have Barry Keown and uh, mm-hmm. Tom Glenn Carney who play two young boys who are kind of helping him out. Uh, and they run into a couple other of uh, Nolan players, I should say. Yeah, that, that's a, a big p- plot point is the civilian ships who have been requisitioned to go to Dun- So they're heading into enemy territory essentially to pick up um, soldiers. And there's this, it's kind of a subplot, but it, these are very important characters. Like I said, M- Mark Rylance plays... Uh, kind of the old he's the one driving the ship his son is with him and then barry keown is kind of a neighborhood friend who who at the last second kind of jumps on the boat to uh you know help be of service right and then lastly we have like you mentioned tom hardy in the air who is a a spitfire pilot uh, who's flying over to dunkirk to basically eliminate any kind of enemy forces that are flying around and bombing ships um so that's those are our three places land sea and air the movie jumps in between them like you said it's a synchronous so it's not all at the same time. Uh, we have a great scene about halfway through the film when Killian Murphy is uh, chilling on, <laughs> recovering, I should say, on Mike R- Mark Rylance's boat on the sea. And then it cuts to a night shot of uh, the guys on the ground at Dunkirk and Killian Murphy is there telling people what to do as some kind of staff starter or something. So it's indicative very quickly about halfway through the film, hey, this isn't all happening at the same time. And that was a bit misleading for me because I that, that's when I thought, ooh, here's that Nolan charm I love, right? Non-linear storytelling and have some fun in the editing and hopefully this will all build up to some big twists. That kind of doesn't happen. It kind of does, but not in like the big climactic way I think I'm used to expecting with him. It's like, it's like watching an M. Night Shyamalan film and expecting a twist. And like you start to think, oh, there's going to be one and then there kind of isn't. And that's totally okay because that's not what this movie is. But that's what I mean when I say his reputation precedes him a little bit because I totally expected something from him that's not here. Um, and that that hurt my viewing and I wish I, I wish I didn't feel that way. So or the we watch, I think. Right. Uh, the other thing I wanted to start getting into is just kind of the scope of this film. Uh, this they use thousands of extras, or at least look, looks like thousands, boats, planes, um, lots of military vehicles, just the the amount of just set things that they needed is incredible. And I don't know how they film some of this stuff. Like uh, several ships get sunk. I mean, large uh, military vessels get sunk. And I don't, I was like, how did you sink that? Or like, you know, pretend to sink it and like get some of these shots. Um, Cause it's really incredible. And part of what I know Nolan wants to do, he, he wants you to experience things in cinema. He wants you to feel like you're on that boat getting torpedoed or getting shot at, by, shot at by enemy fighter planes. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. Like in the same way that I expected a lot of Nolan's um, non-linear storytelling, I also expected a lot of the visuals here, and he absolutely delivers. Uh, Very little of this film feels like it's CGI, if ever. I'm sure there's some here. 
um, if anything, to enhance things like explosions or oncoming water or that kind of thing. But like, it doesn't look like it, and it certainly doesn't feel like it. Everything feels so practical. It looks like they're actually sinking ships off off this off the coast of Dunkirk. It looks like they're actually exploding fighter planes. And like, I think the way that happens is his commitment to actual practical effects and real historical historical uh, um, sets and locations and and props. And, and using hundreds and maybe thousands of extras who are actually on the beach who look freaking miserable and cold and wet all the time. And, like, I really respect that stuff. I respect that with Alejandro Gonzalez and Aridu when he made uh, The Revenant and they went out and shot with, with Leonardo DiCaprio out in the freaking woods for, like, six months in the middle of winter. Like, that stuff shines through in Nolan's work and he knows it. It's why he's so insistent on doing it. And like this movie is no disappointment in that way. If you're a fan of Nolan's visuals, this, uh, this checks every box for fun. It's, it's really good stuff. Yeah. The, uh, I particularly like the, the airplane scenes. Uh, we get a lot of great scenes in the sky, you know, where you can see that there's either two or three spitfires. Um, and you get basically dog fight fighting and you get, to, to have that first person perspective in like the Tom Hardy seat. And it's, it's amazing. And, um, there's a lot of IMAX shots on here. If you watch it on TV, it'll fill up the entire screen. Really makes you feel like you're there. And the sound is, is really incredible too. Like I remember the beginning is very, um, it's very effective because they're just walking through this deserted town and they start taking gunfire and the gunfire is so loud. It's, it, I mean, it makes you, it'll make you jump because it's, it's just incredibly loud comes out of nowhere. So he, like I said, it's all about the experience putting you where you're seeing people on screen. Yeah. And I love the feeling of helplessness that comes with that, that everything is so much bigger than you. I mean, not only, soldiers being adrift in the sea at some points after their boat sinks or like finding Killian Murphy just sitting on like the very edge of a boat that's completely flipped over and sinking um but but watching our main characters on the land trying to get off and just like consistently getting turned back by the waves or just about making it out there and then they get sunk by a freaking torpedo or something like never quite getting away and always feeling like there's just nothing you can do like it's inevitable. Like you're you're just trapped and you're not gonna get out of here. And and there's this this feeling of like survival of the fittest that definitely comes through in the later half of the film, especially the third act. That like, hey, you know what? We're gonna have to start making sacrifices here. Like if we're gonna make it out of here, you know, we're somebody's got to be bait. Somebody's got to stay here. We can't all leave the boat, the beach. You know, like somebody has to sacrifice. And that is is such a great setup for for what i think the larger theme of the film is which is kind of the, the 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 spirit of human resiliency and survival and how it's not just about winning the war right sometimes coming home is just as important yeah uh surviving survivorship is definitely a, a huge theme in the bow and we we see that this it leads to both incredible things but also it shows what people will do to survive even on the same uh, side. You know, it has a lot to say say about war, particularly the, this kind of subplot that happens with Mark Rylance's character on on the small boat. Um, there's a lot going on there. It's The film's about duty. It's about uh, kind of courage and doing what, what you're supposed to do or doing what needs to be done uh, despite the dangers, because that's what Mark Rylance's character is doing. He's going boating directly into into danger, into enemy territory to try and rescue um, some some soldiers. And we see that that kind of theme of duty pop up all throughout the, the film. Yeah, and also um, 
Well, I don't want to talk about the end of the movie. People got to watch the movie. That, that uh, we don't we don't do spoilers, here, so I don't want to get into that. But ultimately, I think this movie is different, right? Um, it's not quite something like Sam Mendes' 1917, and it's not quite like another Nolan film. It's nothing like Interstellar or anything like that. I mean, visually, it is. It shares the same visual style, but. It just feels different and not necessarily in a bad way. I do own the Blu-ray, so I'm sure I will watch it again. But, Andy, any other thoughts before recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Dunkirk? Absolutely. Uh, it's an incredible f- film, incredible visually, incredible storytelling. But like I said, the the way it's it's all completely anachronistic and how the, the three perspectives wind in and out of each other both in timeline and perspective as well as well as like i said the visuals are just mind-blowing and there's so much tension so much um just anxiety through the film and that's exactly what he wants you to feel he wants you to be feel like you're worried about getting bombed at any moment yeah i think i would recommend it as well um and I wish I had more confidence in saying that, but like, man, like the first time through, it just did not quite resonate with me in the way I hoped it would. Um, it is good. It's worth another watch, I think, um, because at first you're just you're just trying to take it all in, and and like a lot of Nolan, I think I think one of the things Christopher Nolan's really good at is is explaining to you a a complicated concept as the audience right he has to explain how inception works and multiple levels of dreams or interstellar and time travel through space uh and and that kind of stuff this movie doesn't do any of that it just says hey here's the story like you Mm -hmm. figure it out and i don't know if that's because of where i live and i don't know more about it or if it's because he doesn't it's not going to spend any time on that but it's definitely a vision and if you like nolan's work i think you're going to like this film um just don't don't walk in with with inception expectations <laughs> yeah it, it, you know <laughs> just it, don't don't just put that out of your mind completely on your way into this movie because yeah. it's not like that like it's yeah managing expectations is a huge part of enjoying cinema yeah it really is uh, this week i think is a testament to that and with that we should wrap the show proper andy what are we watching next week so next week uh we're gonna be doing of course some more uh, streaming titles uh there's new p- comedy starring uh andy sandberg on hulu called palm springs and then we're also going to be taking a look back on hbo max at clint eastwood's 1993 classic i believe unforgiven so i'm excited to watch palm springs new comedy andy sandberg it's essentially groundhog day um but with two people now who are stuck in the time loop and not just one so there's definitely some potential for like a romantic comedy kind of thing and i think that can be fun the groundhog day thing is not overdone i don't think believe it or not i think there's a lot of potential and storytelling for that and and unforgiven is a weird have you seen that movie yes i've seen it okay i never have and i remember (laughs) hearing about it a lot in film school uh specifically when we were talking about westerns and and unforgiven would always be like the end of the western chapter that would be the end of of the of the, <laughs> the, the seminar or or the presentation maybe like and then also there's unforgiven which is like the end of the road for westerns i know it starts clint eastwood as basically his character from good and the bad and the ugly but 30 <laughs> years later and that's all i really know yeah. i know it's like postmodern western kind of and i know it's on hbo and i've heard great things so i think we're going to check it out yeah he plays an, an old gunslinger yes so that should be That'll be good. There'll be a good mix of things, I think. So I'm excited to watch both of those. And and Palm Springs is available on Hulu. Unforgiven is on HBO Max. So please join us and watch 
with us. And when we talk about joining us, we just don't mean watching movies. We mean subscribing to the show, of course. This is a podcast. Yeah, and we need people just like you to subscribe. So if you listen to the show today, if you liked what you've heard, if you listen to episodes in the past and you want to find out how you can give back, just subscribe. That's the easiest thing you can do. You can subscribe. You can also leave us a rating and review. Just like two sentences and like five stars. It doesn't have to be anything cool. Just throw it on there and forget about it. All right? Set it and forget it. It's 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 a kind thing to do for you podcasters. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. We're on YouTube where we post full episodes of the show and segments as well. Well, clips from segments, I should say. Still working on those. But you can also watch the live stream of the show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash review to watch us live and do this whole thing every Thursday at like 4.45-ish, I think is when we usually start. Uh, so yeah, you can come find us and see what we're doing and see see what we look like. And, and, and that's and that's our show. So with that being said, from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.